Hi, this is Tina and Hillary from the podcast. We are testing out new equipment to record remotely, so this week's episode sounds different. Please bear with us. Enjoy episode 16. So Hillary, tell me about your week. Um, it's good. It's, you know, we're getting used to quarantine, which I don't know is a good thing or a bad thing, but um uh, you know, I don't want this to be my new normal. I want everything to go back to the way it was, but we have to wait until everything's better and it seems like it's getting worse before it's getting better right now. So it's kind of scary right now, you know, especially in Florida. So bummer. Yeah, I um, I'm not thrilled with this. And I was I was talking to someone who knows people in the health industry saying that this could go on for a lot longer than maybe we were expecting. And that really bummed me out. But I'm just kind of taking it day by day. And then I, I was looking at the Italy numbers and seeing that they were plateauing. So that gave me mm. a little bit of hope that, um, but, but Italy is like the size of Florida practically, you know, so the United States is big. And I think that we're going to have different issues than the single countries in Europe. You know what I mean? Right. And uh, I think it's going to roll through our country in different ways. And it's going to impact us differently just because of the size and scope of where we live. Well, and also it a lot a lot of it depends on who's in charge. So if you have a governor who um issues a stay-at-home order except if you want to go golfing or go to church, uh then mm-hmm. then yeah, we're going to have more of a problem if you have a governor who drags their feet um because <laughs> they don't want to take action, um it's it's going to be worse. And so Florida is now in the national spotlight because our governor Ron uh, DeSantis is is basically it's garbage is garbage and he's not taking it was not didn't act as fast as he should and so the problem with like comparing us to italy is um we we could have learned our lessons from that and we didn't and so that's a problem when you see this thing happening and then what think it's not going to happen here or what because you have people you're supposed to be protecting and you didn't you failed his, his interest is having the support of those religious institutions that yes. he's protecting with with ha- allowing churches to stay open, right? And money coming in from golf courses, and right. it's, it's he's putting that over the well being of everybody. Yeah, and it sends the wrong and message. I hope, I hope people remember, and we're stuck with this guy for another four years. You know? Yeah, and it just sends the wrong message because when we go to church, it's always these older people, and if your governor is telling you it's okay to go to church and those people go, it's very dangerous for them. So, um, although a lot of the folks that have been dying are that are in the spotlight are young. And so it's it like, we're talking about thirties and forties. It's really, really sad. So I don't know. I yeah. hope everybody's staying safe. And, uh, as you can hear from this, this is our first time we're, we're about two weeks ahead of when we're recording, uh, than when you guys get the episode. So, um, this is our first time recording remotely where you're at home. I'm, I'm at my house and we're using our beautiful new baby, the roadcaster pro to, to record. Yes, thank God. <laughs> I know. Yeah. We got that just in time, um, to record the, via the Bluetooth. So, um, doesn't sound like we want it to sound like we want it to be like <laughs> on the mics, but yes. it is the best we can do to still have some sort of normalcy when it comes to the podcast, you know, and that's how it's going to be for a little bit, but it'll get better 
Yeah, and you know, this is it'll be part of our podcast history that this is, you know, what's happening at the time in the country, and we still want to put content out and uh, give you guys stuff to listen to while you're, you know, social distancing as well. So yes, it is what it is, and it I, is I what it is. you know, I think it's going to be fine. I mean, I yeah. feel like our our listeners would will understand, and when they go back in here. They're going to go, yeah, that's when the whole country was quarantined. That's so, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, of course, um, I just want to touch on a couple of sources. I got a lot of my stuff this week from the Washington Post. Uh, they covered this case in detail. And um, there were a few writers I wanted to mention, especially at Carl Wick, because I used a, uh, a lot of, from an article that he wrote, and uh, Charles Babington, Catherine Shaver, and a Monica Hess, among others, and um, I really wanted to point them out. And I also got some other sources that you can see in our blog. So today, I'm going to tell you the story of former Montgomery County Planning Board member and failed Republican U.S. Senate candidate, Ruth Ann Aaron. Mm. So do you know this person? I don't, but when you said Montgomery County, I think there's someone on my list for ideas, that's Montgomery County. So when you said that, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. But no, uh-oh. I don't know this person. So Ruth Ann Aaron was a successful real estate developer. She earned this appointment to the Montgomery County Planning Board in 1992, and she ends up running and losing a bid for Maryland's uh, Republican Senate nomination. But when she loses that nomination, she ends up in a slander trial. And when she loses that slander trial, she takes matters into her own hands, mm. and it's it's bonkers, this case. <laughs> so our story takes place in Montgomery County, and this is the largest and most affluent county in all of Maryland, and in fact, in the United States in general. It is just a wow. really high-end area of the country. And this woman, Ruthann Aaron, had a very lucrative real estate business. And her husband was a successful uh, urologist, and he had his own practice. So they fit right in in this community. But in 1997, Aaron hires a hitman to do away with a prosecutor and her husband of 30 years. What? Get out! Hires a hitman. Oh my god! It's like crazy. Ruth sounds mean, like an years. older. She like a, is she an older lady? Well, they were married 30 years, so she was, like, in her 50s when this happened. Wow. Yes. I mean, 30 so, years, just um, get out. What are you doing? Stop. Well, well, we're going to see why she may have decided to uh, add her husband to the hitman list. Well, please, and so, P.S., P.S., I just want to say this much. If you're married 30 years, you basically have the right to go to an insane asylum. That is a long time to be fucking married, <laughs> and if you're not time. crazy by that time— Listen, who, who wouldn't do that's, that's You can just plead insanity if you get arrested for that. Well, you're going to see. You might, not, you might not be too far off okay, on, that, sorry. on that claim. <laughs> so um, after she earned her law, law degree, so she um, went to college. Uh, she basically helped her husband get to medical school. And then after he gets his medical degree, she's like, you know, I, I want to go back to school. So he supports her as she pursues a law degree. So... She ends up becoming um, an attorney, and she ends up really more in business with that real estate industry, and she sets her sights on politics. 
she had done some campaign work earlier in her life, and it just seemed like this natural move. And she gets appointed to the Montgomery County Planning Board in 1992. And as a member of the board, for people don't who may not know what the planning board does, but they make info on decisions about parks, transportation, development, things like that within a community. So then at one point she decides to run for another seat, but Republicans look at her and they're like, you know what, let's kind of groom her for the Senate seat position that's opening up. Hmm. And according to Carl Vick, she was the kind of, of the Washington Post, she's the spitfire candidate that Republicans eat up. She has this tough guy image um, on the campaign trail. She talked about how much she loved guns and, you know, going to the shooting range. And I have a photo that will go up on our Instagram. It's her with a gun at the range. And she also talked about how she was just tough all around. And she gave an example of when she used to teach that she hit a child who mouthed off at her. What? And yeah, and she reprimanded him, and she said that it was with a bit, this is a quote, a bit of a swift touch of a yardstick, despite parent complaints. Holy and, shit. But, I, I mean, I have to say that she's running in the 90s, so she was probably teaching maybe early 80s, and I know that when I was in school, I had a teacher in elementary school who used to hit us, like in, in uh, Pennsylvania, you could hit kids with the paddle. You could hit them in a class in public right. school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I would get hit. I had a teacher that if one kid acted up in the class, he would make us all line up. And he would tape. Um, I don't know if you remember these, but they were the rulers, the wooden rulers, and they had the gold edging yes, around them. Yes, yes. He would tape three of those together, and he'd hit you on your knuckle. Oh, my with, God. And it hurt so bad. And so, like, anytime someone would get in trouble, we would be like, oh, God, we got to line up and get hit on our knuckles with this, with this collection of rulers. It was awful. So I can't imagine and, why, they, know, why they would stop doing that. I mean, that sounds uh, crazy. <laughs> it, got us, it got us in line, I'll tell you that. But so I could see that, like, she didn't get in trouble for that because, like, that was stuff that was allowed back then. And But today we're like, what? We, we would never allow it, you know? Yeah. But so that's like one of the things that she said, like, look how tough, like, look at like, this is the kind of no nonsense. I don't take stuff from anybody, not even kids kind of thing. <laughs> so it's crazy. So she ends up in the real estate industry and she's super successful, like ends up like millionaire kind of real estate uh, person. And according to another article from the Washington Post by Carl Babington, some of her former business partners sue her for fraud and sue her just for practices that they thought were unfair against them. And the judge rules against her. And later on, one of those verdicts gets overruled. And she ends up settling both of those cases out of court for about $175,000 to each of these different cases. Hmm. But when she ran for that Senate seat, her opponent said that she was convicted of fraud. And she gets so upset about the, the, the stuff that this opponent is saying about her. And now this is a fellow Republican, and they're kind of going, like, for that primary seat. Right. And, and she's just livid about it, and she can't take the criticism. And that's sort of part of politics. Like, people are going to dig up whatever they can right. and try to 
show that you're not the best candidate and this is why I'm the best candidate. And right. that was one of the things that he dug up on her. And she ends up taking him to court for that. Um, <laughs> and she ends up losing, of course, because the jury said this is typical political back and forth that happens in a campaign, you know? Yeah. So how does this woman finally go down? So apparently after this lost Senate bid, Erin approaches a local man, this man, William Mossberg, that she doesn't really know too well. And he's like a blue collar worker in the community. And she asks if he can help her eliminate someone. And he's like, uh, okay. And he goes straight to the cop because he's like, what, what is this? Like, I don't really know this woman well. And she wants me to kill somebody. So he goes to the police. They say, you're going to call her back. And say, yeah, I'll do this. I'm going to get a hitman. And they get a detective to pose as the hitman. And they record everything. So they get her on tape making requests, giving names, negotiating the price. And it's wild. So I have in our notes, uh, the Washington Post did three different articles of just the transcripts where you can read like the back and forth between herself and the original guy Mossberg and this detective, Terry Ryan, who posed as the hitman. And... I mean, it's such the the conversation reads so casually, like she's like ordering a product or something. And meanwhile, she's she's calling on a hit for someone. It's like he's like, I want a thousand dollars. She's like, What about five hundred bucks as a down payment? Okay, fine. And it it just you it know just, what it, it reminds me of so much because everybody's super into Tiger King right now. Is it reminds me of that where. This guy, Joe Exotic, you know, how he hires a hitman yes. to go after Carol Baskin. Sorry for spoiler alert, but um, if you haven't listened to Tiger yes. King yet. At this point, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all in quarantine <laughs> and everybody's watching Tiger yes. King. Get on it. But yes. it reminds me of that where it's like this, there's a humiliation or something, plus their ego where they can't take it. And so actually killing someone is a, what they think is like a normal thing, reaction to do you know yeah. what I mean just because it's, they can't let something go they're obsessed with it or something yeah and her first target the target that she goes after is a prosecutor who testified against her in the slander t- trial oh my gosh so, and she's pissed off so the thing is that that blows my mind about this woman is that she is loaded she is like they have a lot of money she loses that senate bid, right does it suck yes Right. We know right, we, we've been around. We know what it's like when we see people working on campaigns yeah. and and the devastation because you put it's like you are on go, 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 go in this in this time period. And it's this crunch time. And then it's all over. Right. And when someone loses, it's it's so deflating. And even the people working on these campaigns, it's, it's so disappointing. You put your heart and soul. Yeah. But when she loses that slander trial. She was also running for another seat in, uh, for a Montgomery County Council seat. She switches parties to Democrat oh. um, because the Republicans are pissed off at her that she took the 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 guy that won her uh, against her in the Senate seat to the slander trial. Oh, so gosh. she strained all these relationships with the Republican Party. The Democrats saw like this cash cow. Yeah. Because she had all this money to do a seat. So, like, they were like, sure, come on. <laughs> and she's running for this other seat. So it's like, you have your money. You're running for another seat. Like, why do you care? 
what is the hang-up that you're still mad at some prosecutor that that said something against you in a slander trial? Uh, it's so it's cr- this is I don't understand it either. And again, here we are, just like last week, we talked about Charlie Chris during the Rick Scott thing. Like, even the party just taking somebody because they're yeah. there is so wild. Like, th- it's as if these parties don't really stand for what they say they stand for. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's crazy. You got a woman who's throwing yeah, no, a gun they around. Saw the money. Yeah, and it's yeah. It, it doesn't even matter just because she's standing there and wants to be a candidate. You just accept it. It's so fucking wild. It's, 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 it, it was so, it's just interesting. So in the middle of requesting this uh, prosecutor, his name was Khan, to um, be killed, she then says, oh, I have someone else. Oh. And it's her husband. Honey. So, yeah. And so <laughs> she adds, she passed her husband onto the deal. And allegedly, they had been sleeping in separate beds for years mm. and, there was some talk that they both were having affairs, um, but I couldn't find any confirmation on that or any names given about if there were an affair, who those people were. Um, but there was um, evidence of the husband saying, I-, I want a divorce. And that she felt that in this 1998 election campaign that she was now in with for that uh, county council seat, that somehow being divorced was going to hurt her chances at election. And so she, yeah. So she was like, it needs to look like an accident. Um, And for the other guy, she said, um, she says, uh, and I'm going to quote her here. I want to read about someone in the obit. So she wanted to, you know, have have confirmation like in the paper, like that this other guy was killed. Wow. um, As far as the prosecutor. So this part, this next part to me is really funny. So she, so they, they set up this public drop-off. They're, she's she's going to go to a hotel to drop off the down payment for this hit. And uh, she's this woman. She's like this, you know, really rich, you know, imagine like mid-90s rich uh, lady, um, always like really dressed very well. I mean, well. I'm, like picturing I'm, I'm picturing Melrose Place. I'm picturing Melrose Place. Amanda Woodward realness. Is that wrong? She's yeah, older. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. But like, you know, like the blazers, the skirts, like, you yes. know. Yes, like, shoulder pads. Yes, yes, I got yeah. it. I got it, yeah. She rolls into this hotel with a big hat, big sunglasses, <laughs> and a trench coat. Like, that's just to be, like, she's trying to be inconspicuous, but it's like the total opposite. And yeah. It's like. She watched the movie of like this is what you do when you do a drop off, and she puts this outfit together, and it's ridiculous. Oh my god! Like who does that? So she's it's like it's like she's in a make believe world. Maybe she was. But, um, Don't you think there's got to be a little bit of like a psychotic break to to even consider doing this? Like how would you ever find someone, Tina, just a blue collar worker, quote unquote, to kill your husband? What are yeah. you talking about? Like you're just approaching somebody on the street. Yeah. I mean, what are you yeah, doing? What she, are you doing? crazy so in addition so of course that's when they arrest her um she goes in for this drop and now they have her so boom she's arrested right and in addition to the phone calls because that's like the a a lot of the primary evidence are those transcripts when they go to her home in her closet in in a jacket or something they find a vial of poison and the husband claims 
that he thought that maybe she put that, like when they found it, and I guess they asked him um, about it, if he was sick or anything like that. And he said that um, she had served him some chili and he only had a few spoons of it, said that it tasted weird. And he said he fell asleep for like 12 hours or something and ended up with a really bad headache the next day. And he thinks like maybe that, maybe she tried to poison me then. Oh it was really God. weird. I had this weird thing happen to me. Wow. So they test his blood, they test his hair, and they can't find traces of anything. So that part doesn't really go anywhere because they don't have direct evidence that that those crushed up pills were used to try to kill him. Right. But, you know, the husband had no clue. So there was this article posted on Heflin Wait, and Martella's husbands website. Husbands don't ever have clues. Let's just be clear. They don't have clues that they're making me crazy when they're boiling eggs on the stove and the water's pouring out over the edge. That doesn't, no clue. Oh my God. That's what my husband, I don't mean to interrupt your story, but my husband this morning was boiling no, no. two eggs on the stove. I walked, I woke up, come out to make my coffee and he's staring at this little pot of water boiling over the sides with two eggs just bobbing around in there. And the water's just <laughs> spilling, psh, 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 like all over, the, and he's staring oh at it. Oh my god! And then that stains the top of the stove. It's yeah, so that's what I said to him. I go, "What are you doing? Just turn it down a little bit. You can continue to boil. It doesn't have to be on high." He's like, "No, it's okay." And I'm like, "But who the fuck's cleaning that after? Like, not you, motherfucker. Like, you're not doing it anyway." Sorry, you know, no husbands have no idea what's going on ever, ever. Yeah, no, no, I agree. <laughs> I agree, hundred <laughs> percent. Oh my god. So this guy has no clue. And her, actually, her attorneys on their website have, like, a press release section, and and they have some articles on there about this case. And so uh, while I was looking there, uh, there was an article that talked about how her husband, Barry, received a visit from a detective who said, look, your your wife put a hit out on you. And he was just shocked. And he said that it was the information was, quote, very frightening. And he also noted um, in this article, it said that he was living in fear, even though that she was arrested. He was like, well, what if there was another hit? What if there's someone yes. else? And, and he just kept going to work and doing these surgeries. And, but imagine the anxiety of, of worrying that someone could possibly kill you at any time. Oh, my God. And just the idea that this person that you've been with for 30 years has, has done this. I mean, that alone has to just mess with your head. Totally. So um, another article uh, talked about, and this again, it's coming from her attorney's website, but there was an article on there saying that, and part of the defense that they used for her was that she suffered years of emotional abuse from the husband. And again, that it through like these affairs that he had. Um, and even her son said that, that, Things weren't so great in the marriage, but, um, you know, is that an excuse to put a hit out on someone? I No, you know, um, but that's where they went. They went with this angle that she had, like, diminishing mental capacity mm-hmm. uh, that led her to do this thing that's out of character. But then I saw some other articles that kind of looked at her from when she was younger that said, you know, she was always sort of this tough person and someone that really didn't like to lose. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just a combination. So the charges end up being solicitation of murder for Khan, and that's the prosecutor who testified her in the slander case. 
uh, against her, and then the solicitation of murder for Barry Aaron, her husband. So she ends up getting sentenced for a total of what? Guess how many years? Um, okay, God, let me guess. Five. Close. Three. Yeah. Nobody, three years. Yeah, nobody cares. It's, it's, nobody so, cares. it's so fucked. <laughs> what the yeah. hell? Yeah. So, so for soliciting Arthur Kahn's murder, she got 10 years in prison, but most of the years were suspended, and it ended up leaving 35 months. And she received credit for 17 months that she already served, um, you know, during this trial time. Nine wow. of those months were actually, she was on home detention. Oh, so um, that's that part. So for that first charge, she ends up with only 18 months. And then for soliciting her husband's murder, she got five years. And most of the time, like in the other case, uh, suspended, leaving her with another 18 months, which leaves her a total of that 36 months of three years. The other thing is she got to serve her time at county uh-huh. instead of state prison. So most of the time, county is for shorter term um, and different types of crime than murder. But they made an exception and said that she could do her time at county. And she had to take her medication oh because um, during the trial, she was diagnosed with all of these psychological conditions. Yeah. So they said you can stay in county, but you have to take your medication while incarcerated. And then other aftermath uh, issues, uh, she was disbarred in 1999 from her uh, maintaining her legal uh, degree. So she can't practice law. And at the end, according to that big article in the Washington Post, when speaking um, at the end of her trial, she said, quote, my mind did blow. I did crack up. Uh, She said it wasn't an excuse for, quote, the most unconscionable and most unmentionable thing a human being can do. And then she apologized to her children. And, Mm. uh, you know, uh, I still think you you were going to have people kill. And I get it that she didn't kill them but but three years she ended up out in two yeah and then what two years in prison and what now like what what do you oh you know what i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you the oh yeah yeah i'm gonna tell you where she is (laughs) please oh god so wait can i guess um yeah did she have anything to do with trump's campaign or anything like that no but (laughs) she just lived somewhere okay oh um, she's living somewhere. Oh, Florida. Where would, of course. Palm Beach. Of course. Yeah. Of course she's in, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> 100. <laughs> she is in Palm Beach, Florida. That is where she is. Oof. So, um, yeah. Don't cut her she off on 95. Palm- right. Not only is she in Florida, but she wrote a book. She wrote a book, like this super long, I think it's like 700 page book. Uh, that claims that she never pled guilty, that she pled no contest, which oh, we know is, is different, right? Um, and that she was coerced into that, and she wants to tell her side. So even though she's on tape, on tape, and she even spells out, like, Khan's name. She's like K-A-H-N, <laughs> gives the details of where people are living, right? Yeah. She makes the cash drop to secure the deal. Listen, she's innocent. So, um you know, no shame. She's got this book and uh, she went forward in 2016 to have her name cleared of all the wrongdoing, but she uh, dropped that what is in wrong 2018. With you? Stop it yeah, already. She just, 
yeah, it, it's like, just, just own it. You did your two years in jail, but I guess when people Google her, right? you know, right. these crimes come up. But guess what? You committed a crime. You know, you right. tried to have your the, the father of your children killed, your husband of 30 years killed. So some points of interest, some other ones. Um, three years before she was arrested, her father's remains were found in the basement of her childhood home. Wait, and I what? thought that was what? Yeah, not so, his ashes, like a body. No, no, his his remains. He was found uh, murdered. They found his skull <gasps> crushed. Oh my! And God. it was wrapped with masking tape. Yeah, it was terrible. Um, and they found it was like two drifters were convicted of the murder. Like they they followed through and they they found it. But the thing that was also interesting is that she was running for that Senate campaign when when this happened and. She claimed, like, on the campaign trail, like, that she went to, to, you know, pay her respects. But people in the community were like, I don't remember seeing her. Um, and they said that she and her father were estranged for years prior to his death. Mm. And in um, one of Carl Wick's, in that article in the Washington Post, in the father's will, her father, David Greenflag, had this to say, quote, I specifically and unequivocally leave absolutely nothing for my daughter, Ruth Ann Aaron of Potomac, Maryland, who has been cruel to me and direct my executor to reject any claim that she may make using the proceeds of my estate to take such legal steps as are necessary to disinherit my daughter and carry out my intent. Holy cow. Dang. Dang. Wow. Right? What happened? Like, what like, happened? Yeah, so they didn't talk for years. Um, and some articles said that there was, like, a divorce between her parents and she sided with the mother. Um, but um, when he makes that, he says, who has been cruel to me? Mm. I don't know. So there's something there. But So I just was like, well, you know, this family, you know, her, her father was murdered. Um, and the other thing I found interesting is, you know, I said that she made that, that uh, she sued uh, that Republican uh, for slander during that Senate bid. And one, it's just interesting that she took a hit out on someone who was part of that case that testified against her. But the other thing that was interesting is that that case was the first time ever uh, someone was brought to court over words spoken on the campaign trail. And specifically the word that she contested that she saw as defamation was that he said convicted of fraud mm. because she settled out of court. And so, and of course, like I said, she lost that case, but it's the first time anyone had ever done that, like one candidate to another, you right, know? Right, right. Um, and then, like I said, her lawyers claim that she suffered from mental illness. The following were the things that, that they claim that she has that led her to make the poor choices that she did, bipolar and borderline personality disorder. And her son did testify to say, uh, that he saw a decline in her mental health for years and that he kept trying to talk to his father about it and the father kept dismissing it. And that's what he did in court. Um, and the other thing that was sort of sad about that same son is that she gets released in 2000 and the next year her son ends up dying in the, the 9-11 attacks. He was working in one of the towers. Oh, my God. So, you know, it's just, it, it's just a lot of... Uh, horrible things happening to people in her family, yeah. you know, from her father to her son 
and then her own um, uh, uh, hit on these people. Like, it's just, it's wild. Um, and then the other thing I found interesting, of course, was remember she was part of the county planning board. So does she resign from her seat to take a guess? <laughs> nope. Of course not. But the board does vote to have her removed while she's in jail. And this guy from the Washington Post, another uh, journalist, uh, Perez Rivas, he writes that they do remove her, but they don't remove her because she hired a hitman. Uh, they don't remove her because she's mentally unsound. They remove her because they say, well, she can't attend our meetings because she's in jail. And so we need people to be able to vote on stuff. So that's why we're removing her. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, yeah, but she's, and they were like, she you know, can't she vote because the... she's in jail because she hired somebody. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and they said they had nice things to say about her. So I just found that really funny. And then she, of course, uh, tried to go to court to fight that, that she didn't want to be removed. Oh, my God. Uh, she's court. got too yeah, much. It's... Some people have too much money. You know what I, I know. mean? This it's, is ridiculous. It's, it's, wild. it's wild. So um, along with the, the what we've covered here, you can always do you know a deep dive mm -hmm. looking through our notes and the other articles. But she was also profiled on uh, the Oxygen Network has that SNAP series. They did a show on her. Um, True TV, the Dominic Dunn's Power, Privilege, and Justice did an episode on her. And uh, City Confidential also did an episode as well. And that's the story of former Montgomery County Planning Board member and unsuccessful Senate candidate, Ruth Ann Aaron. Hi, everyone. Hello. I'm Lauren. I am Ken. And this is Paradise After Dark. Dark, dark, dark. Paradise After Dark is a bi-weekly podcast covering true crime, unsolved mysteries, missing people, urban legends, and the dark side of the Sunshine State. We cover Florida stories such as the Florida Skunk Ape. The Cracker Barrel Murders. The Cases of Missing Terrence Williams and Felipe Santos. The Sims Family Murders. And much, much more. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love mystery and all things true crime, give us a listen. So, I am going to talk today about Grover Cleveland, <gasps> one of our presidents. Okay. Yes. Um, and it's funny because we always find similarities in our stories and the similarity today is that it's about a campaign, uh, some information, scandalous information that came out, um, during his first presidential campaign. So, um, Ooh. yeah, so let's get into it. So, um, Stephen Grover Cleveland was born on March 18th, 1837 in Caldwell, New Jersey and raised in upstate New York. His father was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he was the fifth of nine children. After his father died, mm. in, I know, after his father died in 1853, he left school to help support his family. Later that year, Cleveland's brother, William, was hired as a teacher at the New York Institute for the Blind in New York City, and William obtained a place for Cleveland as an assistant teacher. He returned home to Holland Patent, New York at the end of 1854, where an elder in his church offered to pay for his college education if he would promise to become a minister. Uh, Grover declined, and in 1855, he decided to move west. He first stopped in Buffalo, New York, where his uncle, Louis F. Allen, gave him a clerical job. 
Allen was an important man in Buffalo, and he introduced his nephew to influential men there, including the partners in his law, for, law firm of Rogers, Bowen, and Rogers. Millard Fillmore, okay. the, the 13th president of the United States, had previously worked for the partnership. Cleveland later took a clerkship with the, with the firm, began to read law, and was admitted to the New York Bar in 1859. Cleveland worked for the Rogers firms for three years, and then he left in 1862 to start his own uh, practice. In January 1863, he was appointed assistant district, district attorney of Erie County. With the American Civil War raging, Congress passed the Conscription Act of 1863, requiring able-bodied men to serve in the Army if called upon or else to hire a substitute, which is what Cleveland did. He paid um, $150 to George Beneski, a 32-year-old Polish immigrant, to serve in his place. Um, yeah. Are you serious? Yeah. This guy ended up surviving, thank God, because could you imagine? But so then it was $150. Today it would be equivalent to about $3,100, like you know? Yeah, but still, like. I know. The... I know. I know. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really taking advantage yeah. of people. Oh, yeah. dear God. Could you imagine? Um, as a lawyer, Cleveland became, became known for his single-minded concentration and dedication to hard work. In 1868, Cleveland assumed a lifestyle of simplicity, taking residence in a plain boarding house, and he dedicated his growing in income instead to the, to the support of his mother and younger sisters. While his personal quarters were harsh, Cleveland enjoyed an active social life and the easygoing sociability of hotel lobbies and saloons. He shunned the circles of higher society in Buffalo, in which his uncle was a part of, you know? So in 1865, yeah. he ran for district attorney, losing narrowly to his friend and roommate, Lyman K. Bass, the Republican nominee. In 1870, with the help of a friend um, of his best friend, Oscar Folsom, Cleveland secured the Democratic nomination for sheriff of Erie County, New York. He won the election by 303 vote uh, by a 303 vote margin and took office on January 1st, 1871 at age 33. While the this new career took him away from the law practice, it was rewarding in other ways because the salary was up to $40,000 over the two-year period. Dang. Yeah, and so in today's money it's about 800 $853,000 for two <laughs> years. Yeah. Um Cleveland Could <laughs> you imagine? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a lot. Um, Cleveland's, sheriff's, or Cleveland's service as sheriff was unremarkable. A biographer described this time in office as a waste for Cleveland politically. Um, after his term as sheriff ended, Cleveland returned to his law practice, opening a firm with his friends Lyman K. Bass and Wilson Bissell. Elected to Congress in 1872, Bass did not spend much time at the firm, but Cleveland and Bissell soon rose to the top of Buffalo's legal community. Up to that point, Cleveland's political career had been honorable but unexceptional. As biographer Alan Nevins wrote, quote, probably no man in the country on March 4th, 1881, had less thought than this limited, simple, sturdy attorney of Buffalo that four years later he would be standing in Washington and taking the oath as president of the United States. And wow. Yeah. Um, in the 1870s, the municipal government in Buffalo had grown increasingly corrupt, with Democrat and Republican political machines cooperating to share the spoils of political office. In 1881, mm. the Republicans nominated a slate of particularly disreputable, disreputable machine politicians. The Democrats saw this as an opportunity to gain the votes of disaffected Republicans by nominating a more honest candidate. Could you imagine? <laughs> 
Wow. The, like even the thought of Republicans crossing the aisle or voters, Republican voters to cross the aisle because they don't like yeah. corruption, they'll vote for the other side. Wouldn't that be a dream? Here comes November 2020 is coming, people. <laughs> Pay attention yeah. to this. Here's a chance. Here's your chance. Here's a chance. Let's oh, do something different. Oh, my God. It, I also just found what you said interesting, too, about the the two parties, like, wanting the spoils of everything. Yeah. Um, and it's just paving the way for for this strict two-party system. Yes. That we have yep. today, you know? That's right. Um, the party leaders approached Cleveland, um, the Democratic Party leaders approached Cleveland, and he agreed to run for mayor of Buffalo, provided that the rest of the, t- of the ticket was to his liking. And Cleveland was elected mayor with 15,120 votes um, against Milton C., BB, BB, um, and he took office January 2nd, 1882. Cleveland's term as mayor was spent fighting the entrenched interests of the party machines. Uh, okay, so in 1882, Democratic Party officials began to consider Cleveland as a possible nominee for governor of New York. With a split in the state, mm. yeah, with a split in the state Republican Party, the Democratic Party was considered to be at an advantage. There were several, there were several contenders for that party's nomination. The two leading Democratic candidates were Roswell P. Flower and Henry w-, w. Slocum. Their factions deadlocked, and the convention could not agree on a nominee. Cleveland was in third place on the first ballot, picked up support, and in subsequent votes um, emerged as the compromised choice. The Republican Party remained divided its- against itself, and in the general election, Cleveland emerged the victor with 535,000 votes to the Republican nominee. Cleveland brought his opposition, mm-hmm. so he's elected governor, right? So Cleveland yeah. brought his opposition mm-hmm. to needless spending to the governor's office. He promptly sent the legislature eight vetoes in the first two months in office. Okay, okay so he wants to shake things up a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so here we go. Um, the Republicans convened, this is going to be the, now we're going to start talking a little bit about the 1884 presidential election. The Republicans convened in Chicago and nominated former Speaker of the House James G. Blaine of Maine for president on the fourth ballot. Again, we've talked about this before, these conventions and how yeah. they don't know until they get there, which is so freaking cool. I, I really wish. I, I like it. Me too. I, I like the idea. Me too, because then you're really avoiding sounds, all of these like yeah, years sounds, of, of, of campaigning. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just feels very edge of your seat, too. Like, you yes. don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. And you, <laughs> and you have to bring your passion to, like, fight for your candidate. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So Blaine's nomination alienated many Republicans who viewed Blaine as ambitious and immoral. Democratic Party mm. leaders saw the Republicans' choice as That again. would be celebrated today. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It would. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Democratic Party leaders again saw the Republicans' choice as an opportunity to win the White House for the first time since 1856 um, if the right candidate, Democratic candidate, could be found. As a candidate, Cleveland was among the leaders to find early support. Cleveland won his party's nomination on the second ballot at the convention. Thomas A. Hendricks of Indiana was selected as his running mate. Okay, so mm-hmm. let's get into the campaign. So now we know our two candidates. The Republican candidate is James Blaine. And the Democratic candidate is, of course, Grover Cleveland. And corruption in politics was the central issue in 1884. The Republican nominee, James Blaine, had over the span of his career been involved in several questionable deals, which we'll get into. Um, Cleveland's reputation as an opponent of corruption 
proved the Democrats' strongest asset, you know, so because as mayor, he <laughs> had been fighting against corruption, you know, and, and, and um, all the things we talked about before in other um, episodes was like this, this patronage system where if somebody supports you, then all of a sudden you get elected and you're giving away, giving them all jobs to people who supported you. He was yeah. against all of that, you know? He was against yeah. as mayor and as governor of New York. So here comes this guy where he looks like he's clean, right? right. They're, yeah, they're putting up this shiny, yes, clean, moral, upstanding yes. versus the opposite with the, the candidate. Yes. The Republican candidate. Exactly. exactly. So reform-minded Republicans called mugwomps, could you imagine, denounced Blaine as corrupt <laughs> and flocked to Cleveland. So all these Republicans who really want reform are going over to the Democratic side. And um, the mugwomps. Oh, I love this. I know the mugwomps were more concerned with morality than with party, and felt Cleveland was a kindred soul who would promote civil service reform and fight for efficiency in government. Could you imagine? They're more concerned oh with God. morality than with party. That those words don't even make sense yeah. anymore. You know? I know. Now it's everything is party, party is party yes. over everything. I know. Yeah. It's wild. I know. Um. So. Before we like really get into the dirt of like what happened, where I found similarities were today versus this story is like things haven't changed, especially for women. And so I feel like the, that's the, the the when we talk about um, uh, the way women are treated in in all in certain situations, like it's this is a real thing that has existed since the beginning of time. And like when women are like, you don't believe us. Like this is this is a perfect example of like how this has always been going on. You know, it's not just recent you know what i mean so yeah okay um but the campaigns focused on the candidates moral standards as each side cast aspersions or each cast aspersions on the other opponents cleveland supporters rehashed the old allegations that blaine had corruptly influenced legislation in favor of the little rock and fourth smith railroad and the union pacific railway later profiting on the sale of bonds he owned in both companies Although the stories, uh, yeah, yeah. So although the stories, so he's of, got stock. Okay, yes, I get it. Yes. So um, although the stories of Blaine's favors to the railroads had made the rounds eight years earlier, this time Blaine's correspondence was discovered, making his earlier denials less plausible. On some of the damaging correspondence, Blaine had written, "quote Burn this letter." <laughs> Like this letter is self-destructive, uh, giving Democrats yeah. the last line to the rallying cry. Like this is my favorite part of the story is these the way they would they would um, it was like almost like a cheer or something, the, and the the rallying cry was quote Blaine Blaine James G Blaine the Continental liar from the state of Maine burn this letter that's what they would, <laughs> <laughs> the shit they would do right oh, I love it so much it's oh, a grown man by that the way. is amazing I know so um, burn this letter that that alone is hilarious and, and he, I, I how think, much trust you are putting in the person that you're yes. writing this letter to yeah and that person straight up sold him out yeah by not burning the letter yeah it's still there <laughs> i told you to burn it i told you i know she's I probably to... like what the hell especially now there's like burn the letter yeah. Motherfucker. Yeah. um regarding uh. i know so regarding cleveland commentator jeff jacoby notes that Quote, not since George Washington had a candidate for president been so renowned for his rectitude, unquote. Oh, wow. But the Republicans found a story to refute that, which was buried in Cleveland's past. So let's get into oh. this scandal with Cleveland. 
Um, aided by the sermons of Reverend George H. Ball, a minister from Buffalo, Republicans made uh, the, made public the allegation that Cleveland had fathered an illegitimate child while he was a lawyer there. Mm. <laughs> and their rallies soon included the chant. Here's their chant. Ready? Quote, Ma, Ma, where's my pa? <laughs> And I am going to include oh, um, no. a political oh, cartoon please. on our Instagram with um, it's a cartoon of Grover Cleveland, like sticking his fingers in his ears. And there's this woman holding a baby and the baby's got like one of those big giant one tooth in the front. And it's like, where mama, oh. where's my pa? Oh my God. It's so good. Oh my God. That's so funny. I know. Oh, so um, <laughs> well, and that's like one of the things I should have added that. To uh, the bingo game, the illegitimate child. Yes. That, that's the thing that, there you that go. always comes out of the woodwork. Oh, totally. <laughs> so when confronted with the scandal, Cleveland immediately instructed his supporters to, quote, above all, tell the truth, end quote. Cleveland's, mm-hmm. campaign, uh, Cleveland's campaign, knowing there was no refuting the allegations, was almost blasé in admitting that, yes, Cleveland and Halpin had been illicitly acquainted. Uh, Maria Halpin, who we'll talk about. Um, at the time, the campaign provided this rationale. Cleveland was a bachelor, and Halpin had been rather free with her affections, including with some <gasps> of Cleveland's friends, prominent bu- Buffalo businessmen. <gasps> mm-hmm. uh, All so the, there's like, you're, this is, she's this a is slut. some hussy. Slut, basically. She's getting around. Yeah. And listen, it could be anybody's baby. Yep. Basically. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, and he was a bachelor. So, so you know, he, of course, he has fuck. free reign, but That's she right. doesn't. That's yeah. right. Uh, oh, my God. That's right. This poor woman. Yeah. Well, wait till you hear the rest of it. It's fucking insane. Oh, gosh. As the only unmarried man of the bunch, Cleveland, though not certain the child would hit, was his, claimed paternity and helped help him name the boy and place him with a caring family. So this is that side of the story. Um, really, he'd been looking out for his friends and for a woman in unfortunate circumstances. He's, a, you know, he's a fucking gentleman. Oh. Yeah. Okay. The scandal, the scandal, yeah, yeah. The scandal was unfortunate, but the governor's involvement was far from nefarious and certainly shouldn't be, be, shouldn't preclude him from serving as president. The newspapers ran with the story and it was only a matter of time before reporters discovered Halpin's whereabouts. This is the woman. Her tale, of course, differed from Cleveland's substantially. Um, Of course. Yeah. So, and now she's got to be involved. Not only is she there probably as a single mother, in the late 1800s. Yep. But now she's got to deal with, with, you know, she's probably dealing with the stigma already. Right. And now she's got to deal with reporters and all of this other stuff. Great. Yeah. So in an October 31st, 1884 interview with the Chicago, Chicago Tribune, she proclaimed, quote, the circumstances, circumstances under which my ruin was accomplished are too revolting on the part of Grover Cleveland to be made public, end quote. Halpin, yeah, Halpin was a 38-year-old widow in 1874, according to the Tribune, which was also which also reported, quote, Halpin said that Cleveland had pursued her relentlessly and that he she finally consented to join him for a meal at the Ocean Dining Hall in Oyster House. After dinner, Cleveland escorted her back to her boarding house. In an 1874 affidavit, um, Halpin strongly implied that Cleveland's entry into her room and the incident that transpired there was not consensual. He was forceful. Oh my God! He was forceful and violent. She alleged, and later promised. She alleged, and later promised to ruin her if she went to the authorities. Okay, this was in an affidavit oh at the time. God. At the time it happened, not later. This is at the time it happened. This is what she was saying happened to her. 
Um, Halpin said that she said she told Cleveland she never wanted to see him again, but quote, five or six weeks later was forced to seek him out because she was in the kind of trouble only Cleveland could help her out with. The trouble, of course, was pregnancy. Ah. She was pregnant. So nine months later, Halpin's son was born and promptly removed from her custody. Halpin was admitted under murky circumstances to a local asylum for the insane. <gasps> so they took her baby and put her in, a, in an insane asylum. Oh, no. Um, doctors from the institution. Oh, my God. I know. Oh, my God. I know. Doctors from that institution, when interviewed by the press during the 1884 campaign, could corroborated Halpin's instances or instances. Halpin's insistence that she was not, in fact, in need of committing. So the doctors are saying everything she's saying is fucking true, right? The Chicago Daily Tribune reported, quote, Dr. William G. King, an honored citizen of Buffalo, was then attending physician at the Providence Asylum. When visited by a Telegraph reporter last week, he said that he remembered Maria Halpin well. He says that she was brought to the asylum without warrant or form of law. When he examined her, he found that she was not insane, though she had been drinking. The managers of the asylum had no right to detain her, and she left in a few days. That is, as soon as she chose, as soon as she chose to, after her terrible experience. Upon her release, um, okay, so then upon her release, Halpin's first order of business was to locate her son, who had been quote spirited away from her after she was taken to the asylum. Halpin contacted Milo A. Whitney, a well-known Buffalo attorney, and announced her intent to charge Cleveland with assault and abduction. So Whitney, the attorney, says Maria Halpin came to consult him, insinuating proceedings against all concerned in the assault and abduction. She said she knew that Grover Cleveland had plotted the abduction and hired the men to carry it out, as he had previously tried less violent means to deprive her of the child and get her out of the way. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is... This is crazy town insane this is maniac this is bill beyond this yeah. is beyond president by the way so, president. so, so yeah so she's um a- accused of being mentally unfit they are trying to kidnap her child oh my god yeah and who's and now we're talking about a widow she also had two children from her husband so she's a widow oh. a single mother gets raped um becomes pregnant has to go to this oh fucking God. lunatic that raped her and was like, I need help because he's single, prominent. He's got money. Like, she knows he can help her. And he's telling her, you know, doing everything he can to get the – when he, she says less violent means to deprive her of the child, I don't know what that means, but I can only imagine what he was saying or what he was doing. But he knew he had to get her out of the way because of how bad it would look for him, right? Yeah. So he had this planned all the, the whole time to do this to her. Oh, my God. And who's going to believe her word over his? You know? No one. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Shortly after Halpin's initial meeting with Whitney, um, the lawyer, her brother-in-law arrived from New Jersey to offer assistance. Days later, the pair called at Whitney's office with a document that would seem to resolve this whole business. They showed the attorney an agreement which stipulated that upon the sum of $500, Maria Halpin was to surrender her son, Oscar Folsom Cleveland, <gasps> And make no further demands of any nature whatsoever, whatsoever upon his father. So he was he was supposed to pay her five hundred dollars, and then that was it. Like no no more money from him, no more contact. Like that was what it was supposed to happen. That was the quote signed agreement between the two of them. But he didn't do that. He took the baby and put her in a sane asylum. Oh my god! 
Yeah. And, and so what, what happens to the baby? Okay. Okay. Listen. So Whitney maintained in all subsequent interviews, this is the lawyer, that the document was in Grover Cleveland's handwriting. Um, oh, so she has the document. Like yes. That. Yeah. So <clears throat> Oscar Fultz, and by the way, everybody's corroborating this, right? The, the doctors at the yeah. hospital, the lawyers, like these are also prominent men who are saying this is everything that she's saying 10 years ago happened is exactly what fucking happened. Um, Oscar Folsom Cleveland, given the middle name Folsom after Oscar Folsom Cle- Cleveland's best friend, was adopted by the Providence uh-huh. Asylum's Dr. King and raised in Buffalo separate from his mother. Um, I know when interviewed in 1884 uh, the time of the campaign and asked about Cleveland's assertion that any number of men could have been Oscar's father Maria Halpin was outraged quote there is not and never was a doubt as to the paternity of our child and the attempt of Grover Cleveland or his friends to couple the name of Oscar Folsom or anyone else with that of the boy for that purpose is simply infamous and false end quote. The story filled major newspapers during the summer and autumn of 1884. Many of Cleveland's supporters wrote the affair off as a young man's folly, even though he was nearly 40 years old when he became acquainted with Halpin. In the end... He's a rapist. He's a fucking rapist. In the end... He's a rapist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the end, Cleveland's personal life proved more palatable to voters than Blaine's political indiscretions. The Democrats won the election carried by a New York state victory with a margin of barely 2,000 votes. The chant of, quote, ma, ma, where's my pa, was answered by Democrats, quote, gone to the White House, ha, 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 end quote. (gasps) Yeah. Wow. It's shocking. So now this woman has been stripped of her child, Mm -hmm. has suffered an assault, and then had to have a child from that assault, which emotionally and psychologically has to be so hard because it's your child but it's also from a non-consensual yeah act right and then to to uh be bullied to be forced to finding papers to have your child taken away to be called to be slut shamed yep god i know Oh, my God. But tell me how we're different today in 2020. Tell me how any of this has fucking changed. Yeah. It hasn't. Look who's in the White House. Yeah. And not only that, we're talking. Look who's in the White House. Look who's on the Supreme Court. And other. Look look at what happened to the Supreme Court with with Kavanaugh. I mean, it's the same fucking thing. Oh, my God. Right? That's the the case that popped in my head when I was reading this, is that she was the one who was you know, promiscuous and she doesn't know what she's talking about and she's a liar. Right. And she got up in front of the entire and, and, world and, 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 um, and you know, <laughs> this is great. Talk and, about what happened to her. And also, and also that same youthful folly type of thing. We were in college, yes. yep. you know, um, yep. excusing away a and, man's behavior. Yeah. And I, I remember, um, when that happened, remember we did that whole, uh, I mean, like we're marching. Uh, do you remember that before the, yes. the confirmation? And I got so upset because the area that we were walking through, where there were women and people sitting at restaurants, like waving. Yeah, great thing that you're doing. But nobody got up out of their seat to, to, to walk with us. You know no. what I mean? No one took the extra step. They were like, oh, cool. And I, 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 
I, I remember I cried that day because I said, I don't understand why no one is more outraged and is allowing this to happen. I, it was so incredibly devastating to me. And it just, and just the dismissal of assault as if it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's so damaging. It's so damaging. I know. And oh it's God. damaging when it's not in a spotlight or a political spotlight. I, you know, privately, it happens to women every single day. And it's damaging and hard. It, it, those moments don't leave you. They stay with you forever, forever. And yeah. what you lose um, as far as your comfort and your um, uh, privacy and your... Uh, you know, your, your competence, your, um, your strength that is taken away from you because someone has forced themselves inside of you. That's the difference. I think that happens with rape. What I don't think that men would ever understand is that it's something is going inside of our bodies. I know that's probably, maybe it's a little Uh graphic. I'm sorry. I'll apologize for that. It's it's horrible, but it's, it's this idea of like someone is violating you in the most reprehensible way and you can't stop them because you're overpowered and you're, you can't, it's it's horrible and so to be dismissed when someone is being so brave or you know again right. privately and that, it's one I mean, thing she, but publicly is like yeah. it's it's got to be humiliating beyond belief well and, yeah and and to for for the women who speak out on on a public stage the the complete the the treatment by others and the judgment right uh, by others about, you know, and always going back to, well, if, you know, you didn't drink as much or right. you didn't do this or right. you didn't walk here. And it, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's horrible. And, and we, this is what we need to work on. You know, I think about this with my, my own children yeah. uh, as the mother of sons yeah. of what they need to be educated on what is appropriate and not it, it cannot fall on the backs of women forever no and going back to what you're saying of you know where people dismiss it as well it happened years ago or whatever like it pops the memory the moment a scene a flashback will hit you um just at the most random moment and it it still makes you want to vomit yeah you know it it never like you said it, it it's it's forever and that's the thing that I don't think people understand and for me when all of this stuff came out um it flashed me back and I went for weeks of dealing with things that I hadn't dealt with in years yeah and it's 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 unfortunate um to think that this is how the world looks at women or thinks about these kind of accusations and it's just it disgusts me frankly it does it's but, um it's, it's, you know, I don't, I don't understand why women are reduced to, you know, in some of these situations we're reduced to, um, just a sexual being as if we're, that's what we're on this earth for. That's what it kind of sounds like to me as if we're supposed to just get over these things and these things didn't really exist. And what, what's the big deal Well, the fact that matters isn't like a choice. If we're, you know, we're not choosing someone doing this to us and it's violent and we're saying no it's it it's we're reduced to just this one thing and people like christine blase ford and like this woman here they're 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 victims of assault 
in situations where powerful men have the upper hand, you know what I mean? And it's just not, it's not okay. And, um, we have to, we have to start, um, you know, when the Christine Blase Ford thing happened with, with Kavanaugh, when that all came out, um, it did open up this conversation about like, what is assault? What is, you know, and even with the kid from Stanford who raped that girl behind a fucking dumpster and, it's not oh, the women. God. The women aren't the ones at fault. Just because that girl had been drinking, it's not the women who have who are at right. fault. It is, right. it is the men who can't control themselves. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's you know, um, yeah. This is, and it still it still happens today, and we hear it all the time with fraternity culture. You know, on college campuses, um, it, it's these things. They're, they're, it's, it's acceptable. It's acceptable. Right. And when, and it's, and then going back to the, the current president with allegations of, of language and even um, allegations of, of harassment and assault and things were coming out, the, the language of the locker room talk and, and using that phrase as another way to dismiss behavior yeah. as acceptable. Right. Um, no, sorry. I know. It's not, that's not acceptable. So, but, but people, you know, people still voted. Yeah. And then I think these are people who I'm sure uh, all of them have, uh, uh, they were all born of a woman. So, uh, you know, they have mothers, they have um, people with sisters or friends. I mean, they still voted. Yeah. And women themselves voted. Yeah. <laughs> Like I the know. women who vote against their own interests with for, for some of these people too blow my mind. Like it's like the, you are not these men that you're electing don't respect you. Right. You can think that they do, but they don't. Right. You know. Oh, but, Tina, it's so it's too much. I know. Okay, so that was um, really. So what happens to her? Okay, so the do scandal, we, I mean, the scandal was soon replaced on the front pages by breathless coverage of Cleveland's new bride. Um, Fa- Frances yeah. Folsom, the daughter of the president's best friend, became the first woman to be married in the White House at age 21, 27 years oh. younger than her husband and the, la- oh, the, the nation's youngest first lady. Can you? Be- he met her first when she was a baby. He met her when uh. she was born. Uh, Grover Cleveland would lose his re-election bid in 1888 but would come back to be elected as president in 1892 Cleveland was the only president, U.S. president to serve two non-consecutive terms. Um, yes. Maria Halpin uh, remarried and lived in relative obscurity until her death in 1902, and she seemed to take solace in her privacy to the last, you know, to the end. Um, according to her obituary, her last wish was that her funeral should not be public, quote, for she dreaded having strangers look curiously upon her face, her dead face, end quote. Uh. Yeah. So the oh, baby, I know. So let's talk a little bit about the baby. Oscar Folsom Cleveland faded from public record and seems to have cha- come of age in privacy. Some people believe he changed his name and became James E. King Jr., a Buffalo gyne- gynecologist who died childless in 1947. Wow. I know. That's it. Wow. I know. What a great, I mean, what a great story. Yeah. I love this story. Um it's just, I love it and I hate it. I know. Um, and it's, the, 
the fact that uh, what was the original year of when did when the when this assault it's took so it, place? It should have uh, happened around like they were saying it happened around 1874. Right, late 1800s we're saying right. So 1874. Mm-hmm. It is 2020, 2020. Yeah, and we're still dealing with the same crap. Yeah, we haven't learned. That, that this for this long and looking back historically and you know my my son uh is is uh knows all the presidents he he would have known the the non-consecutive term and all this stuff yeah but, my son my son knew but, it when i said i'm doing grover cleveland he's like yeah. no he's the only president who was elected for two times. like i was like oh yeah. my god yeah yeah uh but in our history classes in this we don't learn these other parts mm. um, of history, you know what I mean? Like we yeah. go through and, and, and there's still this ideation of our elect, especially of our president, most of them, yeah. with the exception of, you know, uh, like Jackson or something, you know, but for the most part, um, the highlights of the career and we aren't hearing this awful stuff. Right. And I really, it's so important for people to understand like the, the other parts of this. And even the fact that that all came out, that he was elected uh, afterwards, you know, that, that somehow changing the mindset of people and of voters to say that, you know, that, that, that people's choices, yes, people make mistakes in their life, but hiring hitmen, uh, mm-hmm. raping women, these are things that, are inexcusable and are a mark of someone's character. And you have to say, no, I can't vote. Right. I can't vote for no that. No matter what the party <laughs> is, no matter what the party is. I yeah. And the same thing with like, you know? and also what I got from the story is that the way we, the way that things are spun is exactly the same. We, we're going to yeah. say, no, he's a bachelor and she's a slut. It's the same way yeah. to excuse way, and it's the re- the reason why those excuses are still given is because those are acceptable to society, right. to people, and so right. we have to shift the way we're thinking that it's not the woman to blame, and and just because he's a bachelor doesn't mean he's not a piece of shit, or just because he's a sheriff or yeah. a lawyer or just a district attorney doesn't right. mean he's not capable of raping somebody, you know? Right. Or because and his family has money, it doesn't mean any. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah, it's wild. Um, this, this whole thing really also reminds me of just the importance of language. You know, um, a lot of times people think that the humanities are not a viable, uh, subject, you know, science, math, those are the things of value, but, uh, language is so important. And if people don't know how to discern what they're reading or to hear or know a snake oil salesman when they see it or hear it. Right. Because they're all, they're, they're very good with words. Yep. And so you, you know, as people like we, like we need to really shore up um, our young people in the use of language so that they can understand when people play with it. Like, look at just what happened with the, with, with the 45 son-in-law. Yes. And uh, the whole thing with the, the equipment, that he's buying or that, that they're trying to, it's ours, right. That the, 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 um, yeah. For the, the corona, ventilators, the ventilators the yeah. corona, but it's ours. And then they immediately changed the language on the, the government website 
and they shifted word use. And if people don't understand like euphemism and what these things mean to read through the bullshit that people are trying to sell you, like you're always going to be a sheep, right? you know? Right. So I just think it's so important to understand when you look at bills, when you look at any legislative issue of how language is being used and how people are spinning stuff so that you can like hit on what the truth is and understand how people are manipulating. You know, everyone's, everything's a, a, you know, every conversation is a sale in some way, you know, they're trying to sell you something and I, something and, and you got to get on the ball people. I agree. That's all. That's my rant. (laughs) Today's rant. Oh God. I know. All right. Well, that's our episode. It was good. Not as long as last week, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> we kept it short and yeah. sweet. Well, it's good to hear yeah, your voice. You I'm know, sure I'll we, see you soon. Yes, hopefully. Well, we'll definitely, you know, FaceTime. Maybe we'll do some more of our live uh, muck podcasts. Yes, uh, on folks. Instagram. That would be I'd awesome. I'd like to do that. Yeah. So, yeah, this was great. And thank you all for listening and bearing with us through, uh, as we podcast through the pandemic and, I know you guys are hearing things a little differently, but we still want to connect with you and and keep the content coming. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. All right, girl. I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you next week. Yes. All right. Bye. All right. Bye. If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at themuckpodcast. To support the Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level. Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty.